Hey gamers, welcome back to the pod. Today I'm speaking with Aiden Walker, who is a writer for KnowYourMeme.com, and we're doing an interview for the online and in-print publication Meme Insider. This is part of the recent summer issue. You can find a link for this in the show notes on this episode. They've got a nice spread with some original artworks. There's also a good piece on microplastics and seed oils that's worth checking out. That's just a few pages earlier. In this interview, we talk about the legacy and influence of capitalist realism memes, a subject near and dear to the hearts of many longtime listeners of this program. Beyond that, we discuss some of the long-term goals of this work in reference to channel and do not research. Apologies for the audio quality on this talk, but we are coordinating between various travel and different time zones, so this is the best setup we had available at that particular moment. But I think the content of this chat speaks for itself, and the greater context of this project is really, really crucial for our current weird moment of internet subcultures. I see a lot of possibilities in the near future, and I'm excited for what comes next. So, I hope you enjoy this episode. This is me chatting with Aiden Walker from Know Your Meme. All right, Josh. So It's great to meet you. Yeah, thanks for putting this together on such short notice. Pleasure to meet you, too. And, uh, yeah. So, Juan, um, who are you and, and what do you do? Um, yeah, <laughs> good question. My name is Joshua Citarella. I'm an artist. I'm an internet culture researcher. I am the author of, I guess, two books now on the subject, short books, but um, very unique research projects into online Gen Z radical politics, internet subculture type communities. Uh, the first of those is titled Politogram in the Post Left that I originally released in 2018 and then re-released in 2021, uh, the full completed version. There's quite a long story to that. And there's a second book called 20 Interviews, which is from 2020, which interviews uh, people between, if I remember the ages, I think 15 to 22 at that time, uh, from the, re- the left, right, up, down, and sideways, all across the political spectrum asking them about their ideas, the memes that they post on Instagram, and um, the content that they listen to, and how their political ideas were shaped through various forces and influences content that they encounter online. Awesome. So why do you do what you do? Why? Oh, geez. that's (laughs) Well, I feel... um, I come from a background of the art world and uh, I was a professional artist. I, I still am. I show in museums and galleries and I have an ongoing studio practice for 10 years uh, in the, in, at the intersection of art and tech in the inescapable gutter of art and tech. Um, and I feel like there was a tremendous amount of media attention devoted to the influence of memes and online culture. Uh, during a very heated political moment that we are still really in, uh, clearly. But a lot of the analysis was just really bad. It was um, confused, it was unclear, and it was biased. And it needed someone who had aesthetic expertise. It needed the perspective of an artist and someone who had a bit of a political framework, but also a, a framework of being familiar with online aesthetics and networked culture and all of these things that find themselves oddly located at the intersection of art and tech. So a lot of my analysis is, it it has circulated a lot online and developed a 
pretty dedicated following. Uh, and then now we have this public facing blog called Do Not Research, which we had mentioned before that has 143 posts by 110 contributors in 11 months. So there's a lot of people who are interested to do this work and talk about it in the context of artistic practice. And yeah, yeah, it's a, a I guess the reason why I do it is because it just didn't seem like anyone else was going to. And now I feel compelled to continue the project. Yeah, we really appreciate that, that project. Um, and in some ways, one of the things that interested me about your work was the way that it seems you're working sort of within academia, which is institutional. And do not research is in its own way a little bit of an institution. But you're studying and creating in this medium that is in a way people sort of think of it as a bit countercultural, a little chaotic, you know, very anonymous, very sort of anti-institutional. So how do you sort of see the role of institutions, government, you know, academia, do not research, know your meme, even sure. Dancing sort of with the meme world. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good question. Maybe it's important to, for people who are not familiar, I used to teach at the School of Visual Arts. I also taught at RISD, which are two very prestigious art schools in the US. I've also been an outside advisor at uh, Tufts and at Carnegie Mellon. And I've spoken at, I, I can't even count how many other art schools and classes around the country at a graduate and undergraduate level. So uh, my whole background is really in being in academia and in institutional structures. So uh, it's been a weird move to now leave, literally leave my job at the university to become a content creator where I have a podcast and a Twitch stream and I'm funded primarily through Patreon and I write articles and I make weekly content. I've made a weekly post every day for like two years, which is a very different schedule than working in academia. I think we're at a particular moment where institutions have really been captured by elite interests, which are preventing institutions from doing the wonderful things that they did in previous eras and decades. And the alternative to that is this freedom of being on the platform where you have, you can kind of say whatever you want and you don't need an editor and you can, you know, uh, go against the trends and you can um, dissent and you can be radical, but they, they also platforms introduce these terrible incentives that have just driven discourse and meaningful interaction and cultural production into, I think, the worst state that it's ever been in, basically. Like, I think culture now is, it feels more meaningless and it just feels like there's an endless onslaught of, like, cooking videos and, like, prank videos and porn and, like, things that people enjoy but, like, doesn't have this, the potential for a transcendent experience in the way that art did. And, and we've kind of lost what museums and institutions and universities did in, in a previous era. So my, my sense is that platforms are a bad alternative to institutions. And what we need now is to exit the platforms and to rebuild new institutions because the old ones are not fixable. So projects like Do Not Research takes together a few hundred people, bundles together their creative output, and then creates a, a wealth of expertise concentrated on a specific subject channel does a, a similar thing. It's about not atomizing people into individual precarious islands of content and opinions, but bringing them together to have knowledge sharing and uh, other creative potentials. So I'm very much in favor of building new institutions and, and hopefully 
DNR aspires to be something like that in the near future. Uh, sort of on that point. So sort of speaking about the space of the university and being online, it seems that a lot of your research and a lot of your artwork is sort of with and for people who are a lot younger than you. What role do you think age sort of plays? And do you ever feel like like this Steve Buscemi, like hello kids, hello youths, <laughs> like kind of mean? It's funny because I'm, so I'm 35 now and my whole career in the art world was being the young emerging artist that was explaining technology and networked culture to an older generation. So I was, I mean, being a 24-year-old artist and then talking to people your senior, you were, you always felt like the youngest person in the room. But I guess in terms of the, the most recent work, uh, it feels very much the other way around, where what I discovered by investigating these meme communities, which was not so much a surprise to me because I was around on Tumblr and I just, I just saw the age that people were, and you would see these you know, tweens that would post to audiences of hundreds of thousands of people and they were anonymous. There's no barriers to entry on the internet. The internet was built, I think, the, the current instantiation of it, these Web2 platforms are uh, pretty explicitly libertarian and they have some interesting ideas about what children should and should not be allowed to do and all various uh, twisted, sick... Uh, but <laughs> what is what is the kind of weird reality that we're living in is that um, because young people can get on the internet, they can also have a tremendous input into political discourse and aesthetics. And you will very often find that in these communities, if you uh, say, for example, a Reddit group or Instagram or Discord, their internal census data from the community skews way, way younger than most people expect. Uh, and that's just the reality of the terrain. So it creates a weird ethical dilemma where there are people who are honestly too young to have these types of political opinions. They just don't have the prerequisite knowledge or historical awareness to make a political commitment in the types of uh, questions that are being prompted to them. They're very vulnerable to influence. And uh, at the same time, that is the reality. So you have to create, I guess, my version of responding to that has been to create contested spaces and create friction where people can encounter a counter narrative where they otherwise wouldn't have gotten it. So you very often find instances where there are radical groups putting out propaganda. The people who are at risk, vulnerable or susceptible to it are very, very young. And um, those narratives need to be interrupted and complexified. And otherwise you end up like the unfortunate situation in the past few years, where we have teenagers who are too young to drive, but are involved in terrorist organizations. And that has been the unfortunate reality of the past few years, that there's a level of extremism and youth that I think is, is just an uncomfortable thing for people to deal with, but needs to be pretty severely addressed. I think you were saying earlier that you, one of the reasons why you do this work is that no one else was doing it and you felt there was a need for an aesthetic approach. I think most people would hear that account of very young people being radicalized and think, you know, that's a policy problem or it's a platform problem. But what did you think? How is that an aesthetic problem? And, or just is that the aesthetic problem that you are? Oh, no, no, absolutely. It's, uh, I mean, it, it can literally be an aesthetic problem in that when you interview these people about how they got to their radical ideas, they will quote a meme. It's, it's literally that. <laughs> um, 
people have encounters with art as like meaningful art in a museum or also just a 600, 600 pixel JPEG on their phone uh, screen. But aesthetics can move you in ways intellectually and emotionally, and they can really shape your understanding of the world. So the cumulative consumption of these memes is very influential. And my project has been to talk to people over now the course of probably four to five years and just watch how they politically drift and how their view of the world is informed and shaped by content, podcasts, YouTube videos, memes, um, uh, PDFs, everything that they encounter in online spaces. So to say that, <laughs> I always give this example, but there was a, a researcher at a university that I won't name who was trying to divide up TikTok into two categories of liberal and conservative. And the uh, <laughs> this person's ability to like parse the different aesthetic references that would put something in one category versus another, say, something as simple as red versus blue was just very, it was not sufficiently complex. And so this needed a level of analysis that was, it just took more into account and could, uh, could break down what an image means and all the various levels. So you end up with these lengthy essays about how to interpret and gradations of being something being radical to humorous. And it gets, it gets quite complex, but obviously Aesthetics is having is playing a pretty big role in this, and I think that is a unique point where artists should be involved in shaping the narrative of how those things are interpreted. Awesome. Um, and then my last question, I might copy and paste this and put this at the front of the interview. Can you explain briefly what happened with the capitalist realism meme for our readers? <laughs> oh goodness, <laughs> um, <I> realized. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hmm. Where to begin? This is going to take me a minute. Okay. Um, I'll try to give you the story and just interrupt me if you want to uh, throw in another question. We'll link to your to your essay too. Like we'll put it in the. Oh, that's so great. People can. That would be yeah. That would be awesome because there's there's quite a bit. Um, okay, so I published Politogram in the Post Left in October of 2018, I believe, and there was always this looming question at the end that um, I accidentally through this research bore witness to young people being radicalized to, we should not underemphasize this, really extreme nihilist terrorism. That this the level of radicality, the level of extremism at the end of the book, um, which is evidenced in the print version of the book only, is something that is totally beyond the pale and is inexcusable and is not part of radical politics in any civilized, acceptable society. Um, just advocating murder of citizens who are apolitical and it's indefensible. So the question that I was never, never able to answer is that when you bear witness to something that you are opposed to, do you just sit on the sidelines or do you try to do something about it? And uh, I was worried for a very long time that if I revealed what I tried to do about the situation is that um, it would undermine the rehabilitative work of, of the influence I wielded in that space. So after publishing the book, I began an 18 month long project where I uh, attempted to nudge and influence over time and to de-radicalize in a very soft kind of way that I would just slowly introduce them to a slightly less radical reference, another slightly less radical reference. And I would try to bring them back to a, 
a, a window of acceptable politics where you could affect something in the real world rather than just be in a nihilist discord that everything is going to end and be doom and gloom and fire, which is, I don't know, given the climate scenario, maybe totally not unfounded. But I didn't talk about the project for a long time until I, I kind of reached the end of that. I then started a podcast and a content stream and a Twitch stream. And on episode eight of that podcast, which is, was it episode eight? I think it was episode eight, which is also eight months into the podcast because I did all these different content things. But um, eight months into that podcast, I told this whole story. So the essay that people are reading now, which has caused such tremendous flame wars and common threads and um, insane messages in my inbox and DMs, um, is actually that old. And it's talking about a project that would have been over for 18 months before that even. So this is now really ancient history that has gone viral again, soft viral. It's, you know, very dedicated group of people who are really into these topics. It's not a tremendously wide reach, but I link to that podcast in the essay. Uh, and I, you know, you can just look at the timestamps of that. So what I explain in the podcast and explain in the essay is that um, I tried to bring people through this reference chain of different uh, authors and thinkers and philosophers to get them really interested in Mark Fisher. And uh, one of those successful memes was just introducing the book Capitalist Realism to this audience that for whatever reason had not yet heard of it. They're they're just atomized, siloed off communities that do not overlap. And so the work was to introduce the concept of capitalist realism and political imaginaries to a group that was really in need of a new political imaginary. So I think in that degree, it was successful. When it really, really took off was after I became a content producer and then told the new community in the Discord this story about nudging and reference and influence. And then they made hundreds upon hundreds of capitalist realism memes. So many that there are now, I think three books about it, an infinite number of like pieces of content. And uh, I mean, we can go back through the discord and look at all the timestamps. It's just, it's been a tremendous outpouring of, yeah, really exciting, weird, fun stuff. So that then took on another life where people saw those memes who were not part of the community that was seeding this project and they started to reproduce it on their own. So it has this feedback loop type of effect where <laughs> just by seeing something that becomes popular and reoccurs in your newsfeed, it gets stuck in your head. It's mimetic. And then you end up reproducing it yourself. It passes person to person, like a narrative, like a story. As people got further and further into the memes, they would slowly uncover the backstory, which was this community and this project to like plant a reference and wield influence and to be strategic in our, our meme work. So yeah, yeah, I guess. And now we are, I guess, four years later and it's um, we're doing an interview about it. So it's, it's still percolating, you know, the meme references, they, uh, they, they never fully go away. There's, always something that kicks it up and then it's back in the newsfeed and back in the interest. Yeah, thanks for letting us, uh, letting me join. And it feels like, you know, the thing that happened is like a piece of bread that's been thrown out and everyone's like a pigeon, you know, trying to grab at it. <laughs> can can yeah. I also throw in here that I think this is, this is people post 
to wield influence. And I think what the essay says and what the project testifies to is that influence is real and posting does matter. Posting wields influence. For some reason, that has a lot of people very upset. They don't like the possibility that their posting, what they feel is transgressive and gives them a sense of autonomy and freedom in a world where there's increasingly little freedom and autonomy. I don't think that they like the idea that that could have been instrumentalized by any actor, even if it's someone that they politically agreed with. But clearly, the last few years is evidence of this, that there were a lot of people who were more or less apolitical, encountered a bunch of radical content online, and then got into pretty extreme politics as a result. So, you know, if this this story becomes part of that, it is, I think, mostly evidence that, you know, online influence is real and it can shape people's view of the world in positive ways. And that's an argument to get involved because otherwise abstaining from it will just allow um, the worst actors to take advantage of that chess game. Okay. One, this is actually the last question that comes to mind from what you said. A sense that abstaining from it would be somehow ethically irresponsible. Do you think that in order to study it and just, you know, be a moral online person, you have to throw yourself in there and be involved and be posting and sharing your, you know, your life and your opinions? Is it possible to take a position of the internet that's like, I'm just observing, I'm a third party? Or are you always like a first person in the ring kind of thing if you're actually ethically engaging? Right, right. Um, this is a, a question of ethics and ethnography that is uh, complex and a different for different projects, there may be different rules for it. Let's say, so answering for this particular instance, the idea of having an objective analysis of political messaging is, I don't think that's real. I think that to view something in a non-ideological way has been, and I'm borrowing a lot of this from Frederick Jameson, that has been, that has been the core worldview of postmodern capitalism that there is at all a non-ideological way to view things. In the world that we live in now, which I think seems to be coming to an end, the post-political era of 1989 up until, let's say, really cracking in 2016, and now we're in this fracturing Overton window where fascism is back on the right, socialism is back on the left, and those words are not unfamiliar as they have been in previous decades. Um, the idea that you could do an, quote, objective political analysis is itself tinged with the problem of postmodernity and the problem of late capitalism. So I think you do have to be explicit about having an ideological position when you're giving a political analysis. Uh, if you're doing a straight ethnography or whatever, I would bring a different calculus to those decisions and I would approach it differently. But if you're talking about how political messaging impacts people, I don't think it's possible to be non-ideological. And so it's just more consistent to be totally upfront about that from the beginning, is my sense. Okay, well, um, that'll, I'm going to thank you so much for talking to, to us, Josh. This is great. I'm a great fan of your site and I've, uh, I've looked at a bunch of your magazine uh, and it's, uh, yeah, it's a really, it seems like a really fun project. So I'm happy to be here and chat and uh, thanks for scheduling this and putting it together on such short notice. It's great. 
Greetings to you, Matrix One. 